0: On September 6, 2018, Botham Jean, a black, 26-year-old Dallas accountant, was sitting in the living room of his apartment at the end of a day. Jean settled in on his sofa with a bowl of ice cream and some TV. Amber Geiger, a white, then-Dallas police officer, walked into Jean's apartment on a different floor. Thinking it was her own and that she was being burglarized, she opened fire on Jean and killed him. A year later, Geiger was sentenced to 10 years in prison. In the courtroom, moments after Geiger was sentenced, Brant Jean, Botham's brother, asked the judge if he could hug Amber, moments before a black bailiff was seen stroking Amber's hair. After Brant hugged Amber, the judge, Tammy Kemp, came down from the bench and hugged Geiger, and then gave her her Bible. Days after, Joshua Brown, the black neighbor who was a key witness for the prosecution in the trial, was murdered as he was getting into his car. There's so many things about this case that are worth discussing, but I want to focus on three specific sections of this case. I'll do the best I can to break it down in this episode of Meanwhile on the Farm. A stroke, two hugs, and a sentence. doing this uh welcome to season two episode one of meanwhile on the farm uh back in the latter part of 2019 october i believe it was uh i decided to take the holidays off spend some time with family uh visit my niece again my nephews my parents when i came back i had some work that was booked on a specific project that was consuming a lot of my time uh especially during black history month so happy black history month to everybody by the way happy woman's month for march Big shout out to Mississippi for making it illegal for the confederate flag to be used as a part of the Mississippi flag Now if you could just go back and uh, undo making April Confederacy Heritage Month That would be fantastic Can't have your cake and eat it too I'm talking to you, Governor Tate Reeves Do what needs to be done I hope that everybody out there is uh, staying safe and happy in the middle of Miss I-Corona Um, She has shown up here where the only prescription is a quarantine. So um, this is me jumping back in. Like I said, this is episode one of season two of Meanwhile on the Farm. I want to thank you for tuning in. Uh, Here at Meanwhile on the Farm, we get back to the subject at hand. I'm your host, Corey. And if this is your first episode of Meanwhile on the Farm, welcome. Glad you're here. If it's not your first episode, welcome back. Super glad that you're here with me again. What I do on this podcast for all the people who are joining me for the first time is I take a story, usually current or a topic, and I break it down and unpack it at the intersection of race. Then at the end, I hit you with a few things you can do to literally change. Did you hear my voice correct? Am I going through puberty? <laughs> Probably because you all the first people I'm talking to today. <laughs> to literally change your world and bring some change right from where you are. Then I talk about some people are some peoples that is doing some things right. As I mentioned, back in October, my sister had a little girl, and I went home to meet her and hang out with the fam bam and make Christ crispy Treats with the kids, one of my favorite things to do for my nephews. Y'all, when's the last time you held a baby? Like, put a baby in your arms. I mean, I know everybody eat baby people, and that's all right. That's all right. My dad, I don't think he's a baby person either, because in his opinion, you can't do anything with him except for look at him. <laughs> I mean, he's right. They're not really that entertaining. But I love the part of the process when they've done nothing but eat, sleep, and fart on you. And they just get you all warm inside. And you know it's not gas. I'm happy to say, this is retro. I'm happy to say that I did get my niece's first two smiles. But that was back in October. Now she's just a little plump, round thing, just smiling. But that's what uncles do, you know. We get the smiles. Anyway, I'm in love. My broveries have exploded. And I'm in love. Now, I do have to say, uh, I wrote this episode back in October. And you'll probably hear me say this again, but I wrote this episode back in October. <laughs> See, I told you. Uh, <laughs> since then, a lot of things have gone down. A lot of things have changed. A lot of things have stayed the same, uh, which makes this still relevant. So I decided to pull it out and, and do it anyway. Uh, but that's why it took so long for, for this to come out. Um, the world is in a new place, literally, when it comes to black lives, which matter, by the way. So some of the stuff I'll need to pretend like it's October 2019, and for everything else, it, else it will still apply. So when you're thinking about uh, these topics that I'm talking about, um, along the lines of police brutality and police accountability and uh, race and how all that plays into what this particular story is and how it plays into what's happening now. So before we begin, I want to tell you what this episode is not. There are a lot of theories about what happened back in 2018 with Amber Geiger and this whole case, why it happened, foul play, Uh, especially with the death of Joshua Brown, who was a key witness who ended up dead over an alleged drug deal gone wrong. But I'm not here to prove any of that or to state my opinion as to anything that's happened with that case. That doesn't mean I don't have an opinion. I do. And I might end up giving it. But I am not an investigative journalist. I'm not a lawyer. I'm none of those things. I'm a host. And at Meanwhile on the Farm, the whole point is to talk about systems um, and, and, and how they affect what's happening. And then this dude on Twitter called Joshua Brown trash. Again, Joshua Brown is that key witness and said that Joshua Brown deserved to die and managed to leave me with a you're a dumb nut job. So I am thinking of changing my Twitter handle to dumb nut job to be determined. I'll let you know about that. Corey, this happened so long ago. Why is this a thing? Isn't this old news? No, it's not. But I'll get there. So go with me on this journey for right now. Now, apparently there's a photo of Amber Geiger with both them. The guy she shot. With his arm around her and another lady that was scrubbed from the internet as well as a video recording um, of the whole incident that was scrubbed from the internet. There are missing tapes from a lady who was fired after she had her stuff confiscated by the police. Accusations of individuals driving 4.5 hours for drugs. It's a lot. Now I have to admit that at one point building this episode I started to get sidetracked by all of that. Like I was working for Chippendale Rescue Rangers. Um, I'm not saying that some of that stuff won't pop up. It might. Well, it has to. But the focus isn't necessarily on what happened or who's innocent or why, but on the system. So the name of this episode is a stroke, two hugs and a sentence. Those three things are feel are super key in this case, and hopefully I'll be able to make it clear why I feel that way. First, let's talk about the stroke. And no, I'm not talking about smelling toast. Now, we've all been to or seen a court process take place. There's a witness stand, a judge, the person or representative of the person committing the offense, the person or representative of the person against whom the offense was committed, court clerk, witnesses, witness stand, bailiff, jury, other people. Normal see all that. Now, in the case of Amber Geiger, the former Dallas police officer, when she was pronounced guilty, or maybe before, I'm not sure of that, it doesn't matter, Something not so normal happened that involved the bailiff. Now, I've seen a few videos of this particular thing, and I found the full video, and I watched it, and I watched it a few times, actually. The bailiff, who just so happened to be a black woman, went over to Amber Geiger and started stroking Geiger's hair. Now, I have a stopwatch here, and I'm going to let it go for... (laughs) I started laughing because I started thinking of Elsa. Uh, I'm going to let it go for 13 seconds. And during that 13 seconds, you can stroke your own hair or somebody else's, or maybe not, hashtag social distancing, uh, or just sit there. So let's time that. 13 seconds. Here we go. That was 13 seconds. I mean, she might as well put a couple of braids in there. Now, I personally have never seen anything like that, not in a court of law. Granted, I haven't seen uh, too powerful of a number of courtrooms in my life, but I'm not sure that it's standard for a bailiff to be so involved in the grooming process of a convicted murderer. Well, Corey, maybe they knew each other. So you play in our hair for 13 seconds? Hey, girl. There have been a few things said about this bailiff's actions, obviously, and the one thing that has been said pinpoints why there are so many who have strong opposing thoughts about selon de belief, uh is because it resembles something very familiar to the Black-imposed culture by the white suppressive culture. Mammying. M-A-M-M-Y-I-N-G. What is a mammy? A stereotype, especially in the South, for a black woman who worked in or with a white family and nursed the family's children. The mammy figure is rooted in the history of slavery in the United States. Enslaved African American women and girls were tasked with the domestic and childcare work in white American households. The mammy was usually portrayed as an older woman, overweight, and dark skinned. She was an idealized figure of a caregiver, amiable, loyal, maternal, non threatening, obedient, and submissive. The Mammy figure demonstrated deference to white authority. On occasion, the Mammy was also depicted as a sassy woman. She was devoted to her own employers and owners, and her primary goal in life was to care for their needs. Some portrayals had the Mammy have a family of her own, but her caregiving duties would always come first, leading the Mammy being portrayed as a neglectful parent or grandparent. And while the Mammy was devoted to her white family, she often treated her own family poorly, with death sometimes being a part of that equation. Moreover, she had no black friends.
1: Just me and my radio. In this
0: Basically, tending to the white folk and making sure that they're okay, being, quote, the help. Is this the case? Was it mammy? Corey, don't be ridiculous. That's pretty far fetched. Is it? It's important to know. That antiquated representation of black shows up in modernized ways. Sometimes that happens. It happens all the time that a racially specific idea runs through the hallway of time and takes on a different shape, but still has the same meaning. So it may look different, but it's actually the same thing. As a quick example, the young black man being told that he had to cut his locks on his head to graduate. That's a modern version of slave owners forcing slaves to conform to a certain look that they demanded. Back to this case. No. I'm not that bailiff, but we can all agree that the stroking of the hair was a little odd and out of place. Maybe unnecessary. If you're still not convinced, let's put the shoe on the other sock, shall we? I have never seen a black individual whose hair was stroked after a guilty verdict for any reason. Have you? No? Cool. So, in this situation, black folks, presumably taking care of white folks, again so you're saying that if amber were black then you wouldn't have an issue nope not at all what i'm saying is that unless that bailiff is often found stroking people's hair i have to think that there was something different about amber that inspired her to act outside of what appears to be professional and that would have to be two things one amber being a police officer because officers aren't often held accountable and we'll get to that in a minute meaning she was stroking amber's hair because she was law enforcement newsflash not justifiable or two, because Amber was white. If it's the latter of the two, it definitely mirrors an antiquated way of living, a.k.a. mammy. And for the record, neither of these two reasonings is justifiable. Now hold a Corey. The judge said that the bailiff was checking Amber's hair for weapons and contraband. Mm, I, I think I'm going to call BS on that one. Here's why. The timeline of what the judge gave and the unnecessary of the stroking and a private testament of some officers don't line up. So you saying the judge lying? You call it what you will, but what I'm saying is that the judge said what she said. No matter how you slice it, there was an oddity about the action, which brings us to another odd thing. The two hugs. There were two specific hugs given in the courtroom that day, and the two hugs I'm talking about were given to none other than, yes, Miss Amber Geiger. Now, the first hug came from Brant John. Both of John's 18-year-old brother. Brent asked the judge if he could please give Amber a hug. The judge hesitated, and Brent's voice cracked when he said, please, again. And the judge eventually said yes. Now, I timed that hug. Yes, I did. And I would like for you and me, dear listener, to sit in this hug. Okay, we'll do it in silence. Again, if you want to hug somebody else or yourself, go for it. But please don't hug anyone else because of hashtag social distancing, unless you've been living with them, etc., cetera, et cetera. Now, if anyone out there is feeling hug deprived like I am, just hug yourself, okay? All right, here we go again. That's a lot of love. Listen, y'all, I don't hate this woman. I don't. I'm trying to prove a point here. Now, I need to let you know, I'm not here to judge Bryant's decision to hug Amber Geiger. I do hope that he allows himself to feel the rage that he might feel at some point over the situation. I mean, he did lose his brother. He may not, but if it comes up, I hope that he processes it and doesn't suppress it in the name of Christianity. Because um, he's 18, or he was then. It's tough, though, to have to process having your brother killed. So Brant's hug, that was the first hug. That hug, the, that was 46 seconds. Th- that wasn't the combination of the two hugs. That was Brant's hug, all right? The hug for which Brant is getting an ethical courage award by the Institute of, for Law Enforcement because they think it sparked a conversation all over the world about when it's okay to forgive. Yeah, kind of. I think it's a glittering, sparkly falsehood that they put out there. Anyway, we'll get to that type of conversation that it sparked. But then there was the second hug. Okay, after Geiger and Brandt eventually released, the judge stepped down from the bench and hugged Amber as well. Now, Judge Tammy said that she hugged the family first and then went to hug Amber. In some accounts, she said she hugged Amber because Amber asked her for a hug after her 40-second hug from Brandt. In other accounts, she omits that part altogether. In another account, she said that Amber asked twice for the hug and the second time, the judge time, I am definitely from Louisiana, the second time, The judge, Tammy Kemp, said yes, and she said she ultimately gave her the hug because Geiger went from a woman avoiding eye contact and having no emotional connection and looking void to being a woman looking directly at her and being emotionally connected and having a changed demeanor. Now, for both hugs, the country exploded and was split in two. Judge Kemp, who's been a judge for five years, said that she wouldn't be getting criticism if Miss Geiger... Or a black woman. She said that one of the reasons why she wanted to be a judge was because of the Trayvon Martin case out of Florida. Now, she felt that she had been told by her pastor that if she was in a position to do more, she should do more. Now, before I start digging into this, let's go and listen to an interview with her.
1: Well, I'm sure for you all who are watching it online, mm-hmm. you just generally saw the back of Miss Geiger. Right. And from time to time, a side glance Um, But at the start of trial On September 23rd She was very stoic Mm -hmm. Um, She Seemed to have found uh, A point in space to fixate on And she just seemed to stare Straight ahead at that And she sat very still And after the verdict Of guilt She was visibly shaken And I think it took her quite some time to regain her composure. But after that verdict, she was a different person. She was a broken person. I saw a remarkable young man who came to the stand and. I did not expect, I don't know what I thought he was going to say, but I did not imagine that that was his forgiveness, his outreach to her, um, his telling her that he only wanted the best for her. I did not expect that. There was a lot of crying. Um, I have not had one where defense counsel and prosecutors are crying mm-hmm. as well as the defendants family and the victims family and yes I was crying it's not unusual for me to cry mm-hmm. I cry almost all the time and I think it was cathartic for everybody mm-hmm. because uh, the attorneys fought hard it was a horrific circumstance and I think Brent Jean gave us an example that the person is more than just the act, the horrific act that they've committed. That's the first time I had someone who was going into custody to serve a prison sentence ask me for a hug. I'm very cognizant of the sheriff's policies concerning contact with an accused and I was thinking about that, but I was also thinking about this woman is really, really hurting, and Brent John has given her a measure of hope, and for whatever reason, she's asking me for the same compassion, and who am I to deny her?
0: Yeah, of course, after a guilty verdict, she'd be shaken. I'm not sure how many people would just start crip walking across the courtroom and be like, hey, hey, I'm guilty. Amber, the murderer, is the victim. Not the young black man who will never get out of his 20s. In another interview, the judge felt that we were asking her to bear the sins of other people as a black woman. And that was the reason why we felt that she shouldn't have hugged Amber. For Judge Tammy Kemp, I say... We're not asking you to bear the sins of other people. What we were asking for is a start at equal accountability. I would like for the judge and same jury to, should God forbid a new case come up where a person is found guilty of murder, keep that same energy and give that person a lesser sentence if they show signs of remorsefulness. It was brought up to Judge Kemp that there is always in place a lot of forgiveness from the black community to the white person or people who have committed such hateful acts. And she said... Well, that's because more often than not, it's black people who suffer and are on the receiving end of these horrific acts. I'm going to read that again. Because more often than not, it's black people who suffer and are on the receiving end of these horrific acts. Save my opinion on that right now. And let's get to what it is. So basically, she just admitted the truth that historically speaking, this is the pattern. Ways are found to injure the black community time and time again. The black community is scrutinized, demonized. We have to prove it. Our pain is discredited. Certain systems have been set up that affect livelihood, mental health, community organization, artistic freedom, cyclical negativity that introduces a certain stereotype, redlining results. Blacks are acted against violently and met with a considerable amount of actions that are grooved with the idea that we need to be treated like animals. Those are facts, not suppositions, not fairy tales. They're facts. I think about Nathaniel Brooks, an innocent black man, accused of murder, who, after the actual murderer confessed, was killed by the governor of Alabama. And her racist name is Kay Ivy. Fun fact about Kay is that she was alive while the black codes, more commonly known as the Jim Crow laws. So she was alive then. So she saw a lot of killing of innocent black individuals happen. And instead of trying to heal history, she just walked on over there Well, actually stayed over there on the side of the oppressor. We're supposed to carry the torture of forgiveness in our hearts as black people while heinous acts are consistently being brought up. So, when we have a judge saying that we need to forgive, I want to know if she's paying attention. Truly paying attention. Forgiveness, which I agree with, does not mean forgetting. It does not mean no longer feeling the pain of the offense. It doesn't mean you stop longing for justice. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you make it easy for the offending party to hurt you again. Forgiveness does not mean bypassing accountability. Now, Judge Kemp, in addition to hugging Amber, also gave Amber her Bible. Do y'all know that life coach uh, Iyanla? She has that show, Iyanla Fix My Life. She said that there is a... uh, overflow of people in prison for non-violent crimes because there's a lack of compassion in the courtroom now i'm gonna have to disagree with her usually she has pretty good things to say but she's gonna have to miss me with this one the lack of compassion in the courtroom is not why people are sitting in jail it's the systems that are set up to bring them to the courthouse in the first place people sitting in jail for non-violent crimes are not there because of lack of compassion she also says that godliness is missing from the courtroom again not necessarily true The courtroom isn't a place for God when it comes to spirituality. And I'll explain that in a second. Am I saying that Judge Tammy Kemp should not give her a Bible? Can't give her a Bible. I'm not saying that at all. You feel so strongly about it, Judge Kemp? Visit Geiger in jail every day for the next five years. Because she's going to get on parole, y'all. Pray for her in your own time. Talk to her. Counsel her. Mentor her on your own time, not in the court of law. I'll give you the fact that judges are human because they are. Judge Kemp was well within her right to get emotional and feel. But part of the reason why you're on that bench is to remain neutral in order to uphold the law without regards to a religion. In this specific case, a hug and a Bible passing was odd. Not odd as in weird, but odd as in ill-placed. It was odd at the time she did it. In both cases of the hugs, Brant's hug and the judge's hug, God and Christianity and the principles of forgiveness were the reason why the people who were okay with it were okay with it. Now I ask these people, why isn't God more present in cases with blacks? That's not a dig. I don't hate Christianity. But what I'm saying it goes back to everyone being processed the same way. I'm going to keep asking this. I'm going to keep asking this. What if it were both them sitting in that seat convicted of murder and Amber was six feet deep, black man, white woman, which is a whole other situation. I'm willing to bet my life that it would be a whole different situation. Now, the judge said that Amber asked her for a Bible, which, by her own testimony, Amber only mentioned that she didn't have one after the two of them had a brief conversation. The judge then left the courtroom, went back to her chambers, and got a Bible and gave it to her. When asked about that, the judge said, that she was done, that she was off duty. She said that she wasn't on the clock, so she was allowed to do whatever she wanted to do and shouldn't be scrutinized. So if all hell broke loose after a sentencing, you just gonna go back there and eat a sandwich because you're off the clock? This is an invitation to discuss consistency and how there wasn't any. Very little about this case lined up with what should have been consistent and unbiased. Christopher Scott is a black man who was in prison for 13 years for murder he did not commit. 13 years. Not only was he not treated like Geiger at his initial trial, but he wasn't given Geiger's treatment at his exoneration hearing either. In addition, he's watched all the exoneration hearings, and not once has he witnessed a hug, a handshake, a hair stroke, a Bible. We're sorry this has happened to you. You're free to go, is what they get. Aside from the hugs, and a lot of people will not want to hear this, When it comes to the Bible, she is not to promote or denigrate any religion. Tammy Kemp was still wearing that robe. Judge Tammy Kemp was still wearing that robe. And let's go with the fact that Geiger did ask for a hug. The judge said no human being would say no. It's tough because, of course, you want to. I'm a hugger. I get it. But knowing that you have a job to do, the correct response would have been, should have been, I would like to, Miss Geiger, perhaps in another setting. Unpopular opinion, maybe, but I actually don't think it is an opinion. The judge said that she does hug other people, people who she sentences for jail and time and treatment, not murder. And those hugs came after treatment or probation. Wait, so Corey, are you saying that murderers don't deserve hugs or forgiveness? Not what I'm saying at all, but in this case, in Amber Geiger's case, her badge and her skin color helped her out a lot, a lot. But Central Park Five were kids, and they weren't hugged. I'm sure they were crying. What they were? Five black boys who were civilians. Double whammy. Speaking of whammy, we bring it to the sentence. At the start of the case, there was no denying that Amber Geiger killed Botham Jean. She admitted it. She said that she had the wrong apartment and thought that she was being burglarized, and she shot him. She actually said that she intended to kill both of them. The white police officer said that before she even went inside, she made up in her mind outside the door that she was going to kill the threat. This is assuming that she actually did think it was her own apartment. Okay. She also mentioned that her key didn't work and he flung the door open and she shot him. She went further to say that it's his fault that he's dead because he ignored her commands, and I'm adding this last part right here, from the other side of the door of his apartment. Furthermore, the Dallas police released a statement said that they found traces of cannabis in Botham's apartment. I'm mentioning this because of them mentioning it, going back to how they try to demonize black people. He had a criminal record. Okay, so. Um, Amber's hope was that she'd either get off altogether for, quote, being tired at the end of a long day, those were her words, or at most that she be charged for manslaughter versus murder. Now, to understand the importance of that, you got to understand the difference between the two. The difference is with manslaughter, that's killing because of recklessness. It's not premeditated. Murder, however, is killing purposefully or knowingly manslaughter doesn't involve malice or the intent to kill under manslaughter there is voluntary manslaughter which comes from the heat of passion because of being provoked like the ladies from cell block tango they'd want manslaughter because according to them it was in the heat of passion but it just doesn't sound good to say it was manslaughter but not a crime yeah so that's voluntary manslaughter then there's involuntary manslaughter. Now, this is the unintentional homicide from criminally negligent or reckless conduct. It can also refer to an unintentional killing through commission of a crime other than a felony, like drunk driving or running into someone and killing them. That's an example of involuntary manslaughter. For manslaughter, there are different degrees and different types. So We're going to focus on the voluntary manslaughter because in the case of Amber shooting both them, it wasn't an accident. The accident, according to her story, was her thinking that she walked into the wrong apartment. Again, she didn't just walk in, but for the sake of the point, I'm going to say that she accidentally went into the wrong apartment. That was the accident. The killing, though, the killing was intentional. She meant to pull out the gun. She meant to pull the trigger. She intended to kill him. She chose that option. So the minimum sentence for voluntary manslaughter in the state of Texas, according to Google, is two years. Okay? That's what Amber Geiger and her peeps were hoping for. Two years. In fact, that's what she was initially charged with. So two years. Now, I want to bring in some stats. Before I do that, there's a clip online going around where this white lady says that we are not living through an epidemic of racially biased shootings of black men. I've also watched interviews with this woman in them, and she's talking about this book that she wrote. And you know that face that you get when you smell something but you don't know what it is and you scrunch your whole face in. I found myself doing that as I was listening to her talk because she's a hot busted mess. Heather McDonald is her name. She's super conservative and thinks systemic police racism is a myth. She's wrong. And she's actually trying to get this taught in education systems. According to her, the media is spreading a false narrative. She's wrong. She's relying on a different baseline to sidestep the truth. Black people are more likely to be killed by police. That's the fact. That's the truth. And the fact that it's the truth, no matter how you slice it, Heather McDonald, it's an epidemic. I am not commenting on the color of the cop shooting, though that's another issue that we can get into. I'm talking about the fact that police are killing and targeting black people, and most of the police are white. And most of these black people are unarmed and not a threat and running away. These stats are from 2018 because, well, 2019 had just ended in... Hashtag Coronisha LaJenkins. Okay, so in 2018, police killed 1,164 people. If you ask the Washington Post, they'll tell you that number was only 992. In 2017, police killed 1,147 people. 25% of those people were black, even though black people in 2017 only made up 13% of the population. Moving further in, black people are Heather McDonald. Most likely to be killed by police. Mappingpoliceviolence.org Black people are three times more likely to be killed by the police than white people. 21% of black victims were unarmed, meaning they didn't have a weapon on them. I'd like to state that just because someone is armed doesn't mean that they were actually using the weapon. Okay, so 21% didn't have a weapon on them. Well, then they shouldn't be so violent. Sit your ass down. Shit, I need you to hear this. (laughs) Levels of violent crimes in the U.S. do not determine rates of police violence. I'm going to say that again because a lot of people try to bring this point home and go, well, they shouldn't be so violent and then this wouldn't happen. Violent crimes in U.S. cities do not determine rates of police violence. In other words, those two things have nothing to do with one another. Example, Buffalo, New York. Population, 258,000. 50% non-white. Violent crime rates, also known as violent crimes committed, 12 violent crimes per 100,000 people. Okay? People shot and killed by Buffalo police in 2013, 2016? Zero. Buffalo out here with the violent crimes and no police killings. Now, we know that Buffalo has recently showed their ass with shoving that old man and injuring him pretty badly and then tried to lie and say he stumbled and fell over his own self. And then other people jumped on the bandwagon after this uh, wonderful president that we have tweeted about it being fake Said that the guy used theater blood and staged the whole thing. <laughs> I'm sorry, but if you believe that <laughs> you need prayer and a therapist. Uh, so. We're not using Buffalo as a shining example because they're not. Buffalo is also the place where 57 officers quit in protest because the officers who pushed the man were actually, get this, held accountable. And guess what? Florida stepped up to the plate. <laughs> it, it's funny because it's true. Florida stepped up to the plate to let those officers know that they would have jobs if they moved to Florida. Oh, Florida. I mean, you gave us Miami and Key West and a lot of beaches, so there are lots of people in Florida that I love. Speaking of Florida, we have Orlando, Florida. Population, 255,000. Percent non-white, 42. Violent crime rate, 9 per 100,000 people. So that's less. People shot and killed by Orlando police from 2013, 2016, 15. Now that's in one state alone. When you add them up all over the country, that number is much higher. So let's talk about accountability. 99% of cases in 2015 have not resulted in any officers being convicted of a crime. 99. I got 99 problems, but an officer being convicted ain't one. There are few police departments, and I do mean few, that have tried to adopt new use of force killing. But a survey was done, and not one police force, not one, was found in compliance. Rounding out these states... There were only 28 days in 2018 where police did not kill someone. 28. That's the same age that both of them was. I just put that together, y'all. 28. So police out here killing people 337 days out of the year. Since 2015, only 35 officers have been convicted of a crime related to an on-duty fatal shooting. The victims are more often than not blamed for their own deaths or demonized in the process oh, well, they had a criminal record. Of course they were going to get shot. Or, oh, it was only a matter of time. Oh oh, look at the neighborhood. Furthermore, police officers don't always tell the truth when they're in situations like this. They lie. They corroborate with one another. They make things up. They plant evidence. They say they felt threatened as a gaff tape solution. They try to stop people from filming. And recently, there was a situation where one set of police officers turned off body cams, which is illegal, by the way, And another situation where police actually vandalized a security system after they murdered someone to try to hide it. Point. There is a huge problem with police accountability when it comes to murdering civilians. Other areas, too. But it's huge. As in, they're not being held accountable. So when you think about Amber Geiger, she's automatically protected by badge and skin and possibly going to get off because she's a white cop. That's like a double whammy of all privileges right there. Legit. You've heard me talk about it in other episodes, about how white people getting away with heinous things was, and in many ways still is, the norm. So when they're asking for manslaughter, going back to that, Geiger and her team, they're also asking for a little less of the pinning of responsibility. This isn't too far off, because historically speaking, they had every reason, not right, reason, to believe that she would get slapped with manslaughter, serve for two years, and keep it moving. That's what they wanted. But what happened? Geiger was charged with murder. Murder sentencing starts at two years and goes on up to 99 years. The jury decided that Geiger purposefully and knowingly killed both of them that night. In other words, she wasn't so tired that she thought his apartment was his. They thought that she did it on purpose. She premeditated. She walked in and killed him. They determined that it wasn't an accident they determined that Botham was targeted by Amber. That's what it means when they say that she did not commit manslaughter, that she committed murder. Now, this is huge. Given the stat that I gave about 99% of officers not being held accountable, here we have somebody being held accountable in the highest way. They said, Amber, you murdered that boy. You knew what you were doing was wrong. You walked into his apartment and you knew that it was his apartment and you held the gun up and killed him. This is what the jury decided, which means they didn't buy the defense's claim that Amber was using the Castle Doctrine or the Castle Law, Texas's version of the Stand Your Ground Law. Which means that a person's abode or any legally occupied space, a vehicle or home is where they can be granted immunities and protections in some cases when they use force, including deadly force to protect themselves from intruders and to defend their homes. That's the thing. The defense was meaning to communicate that Amber thought she was in her home and that she was innocent because of the castle law, because she was defending her home or what she thought was her home. The judge directed the jury to consider this as an option, the castle law. Um, in other words, the judge was saying, hey, maybe Amber did think it was her home. Now, somebody said it is possible that the judge was trying to appeal-proof the case because if the jury considers it now, there's no way they could bring it up later, Maybe. But it's my personal opinion that that's giving the judge a little too much credit considering her track record. The jury said, nah, nice try, murder. Even after knowing that she was initially charged with manslaughter, they said, no, it was murder. You hear what I'm saying right now? Murder. And everyone was shocked by this. Why? Because this is rare. This was and is a win. Rarely does this happen. When you think about all the police officers that do kill and aren't held accountable, this is a win. It's a win for Eric Garner, Sandra Bland, Stefan Clark, Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, people who were murdered by the police, police who walked away. No, it doesn't bring anyone back, but it does set into motion the idea that, hey, you can be tried like a civilian and you're not protected by your badge or your skin color, or in many cases, both. In other words, it reaffirms qualified immunity, which needs to be destroyed. If you want to know more about qualified immunity, tune into the next episode, because I go into all of that when I talk about defunding the police and what it actually means. I interrupt this program to say that I'm not anti-police, per se. I am pro-police accountability. So when you hear people say this is justice for them, what they're really saying is it's about damn time things are changing. Accountability has to become a thing, equal accountability, beyond a police officer's race. Now, it's important to talk about things that maybe influence the case. The jury is one of them. The acting jury was made up of 12 people, mostly women. Of the 12, 10 were non-white. On the side of the alternates, two were black and two were white. I think about a case like the Curtis Flowers case, where a black man was charged six times for the murder of four people, and the district attorney, White, Doug Evans, would strike black jurors. He'd be convicted, Curtis, and then Curtis would appeal and take it to the Mississippi Supreme Court. Mississippi, y'all are a mess. And they overturn it. But, you know, I believe God's not done with y'all yet. Um, this man had been in jail since 1996 for four murders he did not commit. No evidence pointed towards him. And in June of 2019, the Supreme Court reversed his most recent conviction the sixth one in 2010 not only that he was on death row since 1996 and what's not funny is that he had to go back to jail to wait to see if he'd be tried again yes for the seventh time now for the record curtis flowers innocent was released and still had to pay twenty five thousand dollars he had to pay twenty five thousand dollars to a system that cared nothing about his due diligence or his black life. Anyways, Doug Evans, again, who's white, made it a point to keep blacks off the jury. There are so many fascinating things about that particular case. There's a podcast called In the Dark, if you want to listen to it. They cover the story from top to bottom and it will make you mad, it will make you cry, it'll make you think. But I bring that up to say that there was very little, if any color, on the jury for Curtis's case, which influenced the way Each case turned out. In general, juries are overwhelmingly white, even though there is research that indicates that diverse, I'm not a fan of that word, juries make better decisions that are less likely to be biased or tainted by racism. There are a lot of reasons why juries aren't diverse. It's the fact that most don't respond to the summonses at the same rate as whites because of financial reasons or employment related obstacles. And then there are strikes by attorneys, which usually happen to keep blacks off juries. But Amber Geiger's case had 10 out of 12 non-white people. Five black and the other five were Hispanic and Asian. It's believed that this is the reason why she got the conviction that she did. This is why she got charged with murder. Now remember, speaking of, these people decided on murder which brings about the whole mess of confusion for me when it came to her sentence. Her sentence appeared to reflect the opposite of their conclusion, that she murdered both of them. There are some cases where a jury can decide the sentence. This was one of those cases. And in this case, they only gave Geiger 10 years. After five, she'd be eligible for parole. With Joshua Brown out of the picture, bringing that name up, she can appeal for an even lesser sentence. That wasn't a commentary on what I think happened to Joshua Brown. Fact is, he is no longer able to testify because he was killed a few days after he testified. So, who does the prosecution have left? Ten years. That's odd. The fact that they gave her ten years after saying that she was guilty of murder. And we already talked about what murder actually is. Hopefully, they understood the difference. Did they? I'm not sure. Reason being when they asked why they gave only 5 years above the minimum which is 5 years it was because they thought that that's what both them would have wanted because of Geiger's remorse on the stand and because they believed that Geiger did not set out to kill both them and entered his home by mistake <laughs> if you are just as confused as i am that's correct so Not only did you say she murdered, but then you say she you don't felt like she did murder. Okay, so now we're also consulting the idea of what the deceased would have wanted. We're not planning a funeral. We're sentencing a convicted person. One of the jurors in the interview said, I can't give her 28 years. Twenty eight was suggested as the sentence to the jurors, one for each year that both of them would have been alive. More from the jury. I didn't feel like I had the right to speak for him, and he isn't there to talk for himself. But listening to how other people talked about Botham, I felt like he would forgive her. They were asking us to take an eye for an eye for Botham, and I feel like he isn't someone who would take an eye for an eye. He would turn the other cheek. Oh, okay, so you do feel like you have the right to speak for him. So now we're giving sentences based on how the victim would have wanted things and the amount of remorse the accused feels. There are people who think this is noble. This is the power of forgiveness. The things that we do in life have consequences one way or another. That's how life was designed. That's how life was set up. Sometimes there's a grace for things, and other times there's an alignment. You act a certain way or perform a certain way. Consequences, no matter how remorseful you feel, are present. Well, if you're black or not a police officer. Well, she did get consequences. Ten years. I respond to that by reading you a statement that Geiger said. I wish he was the one with the gun that killed me. Yeah. Okay. Fine, Amber. Let's take a look at that again, shall we? Black man Botham Jean comes home from a 13 and a half hour shift at the accounting firm and accidentally walks into Amber Geiger's apartment on a different floor and opens fires and kills her. You think he getting 10 years? Hugs? Hair strokes? Bibles? probably not i'm not saying hey she needs 99 years what i am saying is that she was treated differently from her black and civilian counterparts when it comes to shooting someone fatally give them 10 years as well no okay well then give her 99 years was the sentence too lenient now this is opinion (laughs) yes it was and i say that in a way that introduces equality into the mix It was too lenient because I've seen juries give harsher sentences to individuals who were black for lesser crimes, for crimes that they did not commit. Here's a fun little fact for you. Amber Geiger will spend less time in jail than the Central Park Five. And if you don't know who the Central Park Five were, I mentioned them earlier. You need to go Google them. And a little tidbit about that story. The prosecutor who lied on those boys is now upset because she said she was falsely represented and tried to enter a battle with Ava DuVernay. In addition to posting memes like the NFL died of Colin cancer, Geiger was actually a part of a text chain where she texted the following after having to work an MLK parade. Someone on the chain asks, When does this end? LOL. Geiger responded, When MLK is dead. Oh, wait. There are texts of her and her former partner mocking black officers and Just two days before she killed Jean, in a text she said of a possibly racist dog, it's okay, I'm the same. Here's what rattles me. She was in a text thread with other Dallas police officers. That's not a snake, that's me putting emphasis on the fact that there's more than one. And that that space was where she felt comfortable enough to as a person whose job it is to protect and serve all people be that candid. Another thing that rattles me is that she exchanged these types of texts with her partner who still has his job. So we have these things supporting and protecting someone who's really Corey, the forgiveness. Listen, I've had some pretty racist things that have been said to me, done to me. (laughs) Some of them within the last three months. Um, People have knowingly and unknowingly said and done some pretty shitty things. I'm not holding on to any of that in the form of unforgiveness. But going back to what I said earlier, forgiveness doesn't mean not being held accountable. Speaking of the hug, well, isn't it his, Brant's, them's your brother, isn't it his choice to respond that way? Isn't it his choice to respond the way that he wants? Absolutely. But you want to know what would have been more powerful? Privatizing the display. Both Brent and the judge going to this person in private and doing that work. The conversation has shifted a bit. It's all important. Don't get me wrong. But so many aspects of this case panned out, were just odd. And the icing on the cake is that Amber Geiger wanted to appeal. And actually, now that I think about it, another reason why I didn't release this episode is because Tatiana Jefferson, a 28-year-old black woman, was shot by a white police officer through the window of her own home can never identified himself as a police officer. I saw the uh, body cam footage, and if that's how police are trained, burn it to the ground. I mean, you also think about uh, Breonna Taylor, <sighs> breathe. Um, currently, Aaron Dean, the officer that was that shot and killed Tatiana, had been fired and indicted with murder. The mother, um, Tatiana's dad, has since died, was relieved to know that. You know why she was relieved? Because it's not the norm for police officers and for white police officers to be indicted for murder. Last thing, and I'll wrap this up here. I want to play for you the call that Amber makes to the dispatch. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you haven't. Here it is. It's five minutes long. If you don't want to hear it, then you can just fast forward through this. Uh, otherwise, uh, here you go.
2: Yeah. Just on this is Carla, where's your uh, emergency? Hi, this is an um, off-duty officer. Um, can I get, I need EMS, um, uh, I'm in, number. Um, I had, uh, Do you need police please. as well or just EMS? Yes, I need both. Okay, what's the address? Uh, I'm at apartment number 1478. I'm in 1478. And what's yes. the address there? Um, it's 1210 South Lamar, 1478, yeah. What's I miss, going on? I miss, I'm an officer, the officer, I thought it was in my apartment, and I shot a guy thinking that he was, thinking it was my apartment. He Shot also. someone? Yes, I thought it was my apartment. I'm fucked. Oh my God. I'm sorry. Okay, and where, where are you at right now? I'm in, uh, what do you mean? I'm inside the apartment with him. Hey, come on. What's your name? I'm Amber Geiger. I need to get me. I'm, I'm in. <laughs> okay, we have help on the way. I know, but Hold I'm, on. I'm going to lose my job. <laughs> I thought it was my apartment. Okay, I need to Hold on. Fuck. Okay, stay with me, okay? I am, I am. Yeah. I need, I need to provide Hey, bud. Hey, bud. It was, it come on. Oh, fuck. I, I thought it was my apartment. I understand. Now we, we have help. i on thought the it, was it was my apartment. apartment. <sighs> Hurry, please. They're on their way. I mean, I, I thought it was my apartment. I thought it was my apartment. I could have sworn I on the third floor. Okay, I understand. No, I thought, I thought it was my apartment. 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 And then, what's that gate code there? I don't know. I don't know. You don't know? Okay. I am mean, I mean, I, I thought it was me. my apartment. They're trying to get in there. There we have an officer there. You don't know the gate code? No. I thought it was my apartment. I thought it was my apartment. Okay, and what what floor are you in right now? The fourth floor. Fourth, fourth. Hey bud. Hey bud. they're coming, they're bud. I'm sorry, man. Okay, where was she where was he shot? He's on the top top left. I think you're with Dallas PD, right? Yes. Oh my God, I'm done. I didn't mean to. I get there to you, okay? I know. I know. I, I I, I, stay with me, bud. They're already there. They're trying to get to you. Holy fuck. I thought it was my apartment. I thought it was my apartment. Holy fuck. I thought it was my apartment. Oh, my God. Okay, they're trying to get there to you. Do you hear them? Do you see them? No. 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 I'm off duty, I'm off duty! I thought <laughs> I thought they were in my apartment! I thought this was my floor.
0: <laughs> Did you notice anything? Did you hear the dispatch pay attention to both of them? Ask about his condition, whether he was breathing. Responsive. I needed to know, so I went and looked up the questions that a dispatch asks in a situation like this. And they are supposed to ask about the victim. She didn't. I wonder if it's because it was a police-involved shooting and the victim was the less important of the two. Judge Kemp said that she was surprised that people think her hug was somehow detrimental. How could she not be considering? You know, there's a lot of people who say that anyone tries to make uh, parts of this case about race is race-baiting that this isn't about race, that the trial was fair, that the judge was impartial, that the bailiff was impartial, that the jury did what they needed to do. But I I ask one last time, if both of them, a black civilian, had shot and killed Amber, a white police officer, would all of these elements still have been in place? Would everything have still been the same? And if it had been the same, would you be surprised? Or would you see Blue lives matter. Post. For the record, I heard an individual say this and it made me think, because it made sense to me. There's no such thing as a blue life. There's only a blue shirt. (laughs) And it made me think. Blue lives aren't blue lives. They're humans. And humans that need to be held to a higher standard. A higher level of accountability. Because this hunting is not the way to go about it. And it is hunting. And it's the reason why I think the whole system needs to be flipped. And by flipped... I mean, destroyed. Now, to talk to you about what you can do, I know that this particular ask is for police officers who aren't in the wrong apartment, but it's still an important step. Listen, y'all, we need to stay on our reps. We need to make them sick of us. We need to sear our voices into their heads so it's the only thing that they hear. There has to be greater accountability for police shootings. Amber was fired, but was coddled every step of the way in the process and despite what happened. Too many officers are not being held accountable for their actions because, quote, they were afraid or because they fear for their lives. Okay, yes. Amber was treated like a civilian, but was she treated like a civilian of color? And while the situation was a little different, too many black people are the target of police killings. 2.5 to three times more likely to be shot by police. How do you contact your reps? House.gov forward slash representatives forward slash find dash your dash representative. Type in your zip code. Once you get your rep populated, click on his or her photo and use that contact information. You say hi, Congressman Sherman, that's mine. Hi, Congressman Sherman. My name is Corey and I live in insert zip code and I would like for you to join the fight for greater accountability for police shootings. Let them know how disappointed you are in how this is happening especially in these bigger cities. I mean, it should be everywhere, but definitely those. Another thing you can do is be proactive about informed voting. Notice I said informed voting. That means doing your research, stepping up to the plate. It means taking the hour to research candidates and seeing what they're about and getting the right people into office. We have a huge election coming up in November. Research. Research how people feel about the issues, and especially on the local level. The local level is actually where it counts. A lot of it. Those people appoint other people who directly affect you. So you get the right people in there, you're going to get the right people working with you and for you. Here are two organizations to which you can donate. First one, Build Power. Um, this is a grassroots organization started by a dear friend of mine, and they have been actively doing the work. Go to their Instagram, Build Power. B-L-D-P-W-R. That's Bill Power without the vowels. Follow them for action steps. They are constantly posting activations and things like that, ways you can get involved and drop donations to them while they do the work. Um, Also, Color of Change, another organization. They have their ear to the ground, super informed, and are about radical change and equality. So, that's this episode. Some states are practicing opening up and some are still locking down. Please, please, please be safe and take things seriously. This is fixable. It's fixable. In the meantime, keep breathing through your mask. You're actually a part of history, which is kind of cool. What part of history would you want to be on? What would you want the history books to say about you? Um, I know this is tough. Mentally, economically, socially. It's a lot to consider. Most of us have never been through this before. But no matter what, even with the social distancing, you're not alone. If you need to talk to someone, reach out. And remember that while this world is healing. so much for listening to this episode of meanwhile on the farm i know you got a lot of time on your hands but most of us anyway so it means a lot that you spent some of it with me listen you could have been doing anything else like going to the refrigerator to get an extra snack (laughs) i'm not judging you i'm calling myself out here uh but if you have any questions or concerns feel free to hit me up at cory at meanwhile on the farm.com or you can hit me up on the ig page meanwhile on the farm and put a dot in between every word now, I haven't been very active there in a long long while since I have uh, to get back involved, but you can find me there. And if you're not subscribed to this podcast on your favorite platform, why the heck not? Go ahead and do that. And while you're at it, share this with a friend or family member or neighbor or enemy, <laughs> especially if it's an enemy. I'm <laughs> just kidding, y'all. Uh, again, I'm Corey. This has been me while on the Farm, and I so appreciate you. Shout out to my sponsors. I see your support, and it encourages me If you'd like to be a sponsor, i gladly welcome that as well. And I know I said it already, but if you're feeling alone, reach out. Mental health is very important, and there's no shame in saying, hey, I need you right now. And remember, if you're silent, it speaks volumes. Peace.